Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Gift of Rest. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 18th, 2021. In a New York Times article this past April, organizational psychologist Adam Grant identified the dominant emotion of 2021 as languishing. He went on to describe this unfortunate state in a variety of ways. A sense of emptiness, despondency, a lack of hope, aimlessness and joylessness, the dulling of delight, and the dwindling of desire. At around the same time, researchers noted that roughly 60% of Americans are experiencing pandemic-related insomnia right now, despite the gains we've made in vaccinating our population, lowering nationwide mortality rates, and resuming some measure of normal life. In other words, what began over a year ago as a natural flight-or-fight response to a global state of emergency has now morphed into something shapeless and sinister. We've lost a sense of balance and rhythm. We can't get started. We can't wind down. We're anxious, sleepless, overstimulated, and bored. So I'm especially grateful for the lectionary this week because it offers us a way out a way out of our malaise, a way out of our endless and inefficient striving, a way out of our culture's soul-draining workaholism. Specifically, it offers us a portrait of Jesus we rarely consider, a Jesus who believes in rest. When I read the Gospels, I tend to envision a brisk and efficient Messiah, full of purpose but short on time, striding from village to synagogue to hilltop to seaside, a whirlwind of miracles, parables, and life-changing conversations swirling around him. In fact, for most of my life, I have regarded Jesus as a sleepless zealot, striving to save the world before his clock runs down. But a high-strung workaholic is not who emerges in our Gospel reading this week. Instead, we find a Jesus who recognizes, honors, and tends to his own tiredness. We encounter a teacher who pulls his overheated disciples away from their labor and striving. We discover a savior who probes below the surfaces of our busyness and pinpoints the hunger our manic culture won't allow us to name. The hunger for space, reflection, solitude, nourishment, recreation, rest, and sleep. Having spent a few days now with this lectionary, I wonder if the striving, hurrying Jesus I usually conjure in my head is really Jesus at all. Maybe he's a distorted mirror image of me, my anxiety, my perfectionism, my dread of wasting time, my conflation of endless striving with virtue. Our gospel reading is an odd one this week, a disjointed cut-and-paste job that brackets Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 to focus on the seemingly less spectacular events that precede and follow it. Mark 6, 30-34 describes the return of the disciples from their first ministry tour, their inauguration into apostleship. We see them on fire, bursting with thrilling stories of the healings, exorcisms, and effective evangelistic campaigns they've pulled off for the first time. They are wired, excited, caffeinated, ready. In their minds, all they need is their next project from Jesus, their next divine mission, In their minds, they have everything they need to dazzle the crowds yet again with their newfound abilities and powers. But Jesus disagrees. Where the disciples see energy, Jesus sees overstimulation. Where the disciples see a tightly packed schedule, Jesus sees a poor need, poor sense of balance and rhythm. Where the disciples see invincibility, Jesus sees need. The need to debrief and reflect. The need to eat, pray, play, and sleep. 
the need to learn the art of solitude. Perhaps Jesus senses that the disciples have darker stories to share with him too, stories that will take time and tenderness to unearth. Stories of failure and rejection, stories of doubt, hard stories they need to process privately with their teacher. Whatever the case, Jesus recognizes the disciples need a break. They are wired, tired, underfed, and in significant need of rest. Jesus, meanwhile, is not in top form himself. He has just lost John the Baptist, his beloved cousin and prophet, the one who baptized him and spent a lifetime in the wilderness preparing his way. Worse, Jesus has lost him to murder, a terrifying reminder that God's beloved are not immune to violent, senseless deaths. Maybe Jesus' own end feels closer and his own vocation seems more ominous. In other words, he has many reasons to feel heartbroken. Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while, he says to his disciples, as the crowds throng around them at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Come away with me, is how another translation puts it, and I hear both wisdom and love in these words. Jesus wants to provide a time of rest and recuperation for his friends. He wants to make sure that their zeal for ministry, for a success in ministry, does not become an idol, a drug. He wants to make sure that they value being more than doing. Lesson one for me, pay more attention to the throwaway passages in the Gospels, those little transition verses which often precede or follow the main events of Jesus' life story. Passages like Luke 5.16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Or Mark 11.12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Or Matthew 8.24, Jesus was sleeping. Or Mark 7.24, he didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in. In these minor verses, I see essential glimpses of Jesus' human life, his need to withdraw, his desire for solitary prayer, his physical hunger, his sleepiness, his inclination to hide. These glimpses take nothing away from Jesus' divinity. They enhance it, making it richer and all the more mysterious. They remind me that the doctrine of the Incarnation truly is Christianity's best gift to the world, God. The God of the whole universe hungers, sleeps, eats, rests, withdraws, and grieves. In all of these mundane but crucial ways, our God is like us. Our God rests. Of course, this lesson isn't new. It runs through scripture from its earliest pages. In Genesis, God rests on the seventh day and calls the Sabbath holy for all future generations. Honoring this is no small feat in our 21st century lives, where every hour of every day is measured in profits gained or advantages lost. For me, rest never comes naturally. I forget about it, I fear it, I resist it. To remember that God rests, that Jesus rests, is startling and humbling. How dare I keep running on fumes when Jesus himself insists that his followers do otherwise? The Sabbath is the only thing in the creation account that God calls holy. We would do well to pay attention. One of the most insidious social and cultural impacts of the COVID pandemic has been its blurring of the boundaries between work and home, productivity and rest. For some people, this has looked like the transforming of their homes into makeshift daycares, schools, nursing facilities, and professional workspaces all at once, just to meet the multi-generational demands of life under quarantine. For others, it has meant living 24-7 on Zoom with no clear lines between digital and analog screen and self. For others, it has meant losing income or work or facing eviction or watching loved ones die of COVID. No wonder we're languishing. We're not meant to live this way. 
were meant to come away, to honor the rhythms and borders of work and play, inside and outside, online and in person, sleep and wakefulness. It's not a coincidence that Jesus asks his disciples to leave the noise and crowds behind. Sometimes we need to unplug. Fortunately, we follow a Savior who is unapologetic about his need for rest and solitude, who sees no shame in retreating when he and his disciples need a break, who does so even when the needs around him continue to press in on all sides. Jesus is able to do this because he trusts God enough to let go. Even as he recognizes his vocation and honors his commitments, he doesn't hoard the limelight or allow his disciples to imagine that their faith makes them invincible. In the end, the work is God's. We are precious and beloved, but we're not indispensable. It is more than okay to rest. For books this week, Dan reviews War, How Conflict Shaped Us by Margaret Macmillan. Margaret Macmillan is Emeritus Professor of International History at the University of Oxford, where she was the former warden of St. Anthony's College and Professor of History at the University of Toronto. Her book, War, was named one of the 10 best books of 2020 by the New York Times. This book makes for very sobering reading when you consider the scale and scope of war, especially given Macmillan's encyclopedic knowledge of the subject, from ancient Greece and Rome to classical China, medieval Europe, modern America, the Middle East, and Africa. Think of the Rwandan genocide. War has led to over 100 million deaths in this century alone, and certainly to the loss of religious faith for many. War is a terrifying mystery that is full of paradoxes. It turns some young boys into men and some good men into beasts. War can bring peace. It can ruin or energize a national economy. War can unite a nation. It brings out both the heroism and the cruelty of humanity. Whereas the instinct to fight might be innate in human nature, war is different. It is, in its essence, a vastly complex form of organized violence, and in that sense, it is a uniquely human activity. War is a cause for horror, fascination, and most certainly glorification. As one of the defining features of humanity, says Macmillan, we must never avert our eyes from something we may find abhorrent. We must, more than ever, think about war. By some measures, the United States is the most militaristic nation on Earth. Today, the Department of Defense admits that America deploys 254,788, double that number if you include dependents, military personnel to about 800 military bases in 153 countries. There are 189 countries in the United Nations. That does not include numerous secret and officially non-existent bases. Our own country is home to 969 separate bases in all 50 states. Britain and France have a combined 13 overseas bases. Russia has nine. The United States, observes Macmillan, allocates nearly two-thirds of its discretionary budget to defense. It spends as much as the next eight spenders combined. When I finished reading about this dreadful subject, I thought of the words of Jesus, Blessed are the peacemakers. I also thought about the most famous poem about World War I, Dulce et Decorum Est, by Wilfred Owen, 1893-1918. The title of the poem comes from a Latin saying taken from an ode by Horace. The full saying ends the poem, Dulce et Decorum Est pro patria mori. It is sweet and right to die for your country. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshod. 
All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick boys. An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's, sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. On November 4, 1918, Owen was shot and killed in the village of Oars. One week later, armistice bells rang on November 11th, celebrating the end of World War I. For films this week, Dan reviews The Dig. When my wife and I watched this British historical drama, it was trending in the top ten on Netflix. The movie is based upon a 2007 novel of the same name that tells the story of an important archaeological excavation near Suffolk on a 526-acre estate called Sutton Hoo. When you include sharp English class divisions, a couple of romantic subplots, the outbreak of World War II, Carrie Mulligan star power, and those endearing accents, you have a rock-solid recipe. In 1939, a wealthy widow named Edith Pretty hired the uneducated but self-taught local excavator, he would not allow himself to be called an archaeologist, named Basil Brown, to explore the burial mounds on her estate. When Brown unearthed some priceless artifacts from a buried ship that suggests a tomb befitting a king, his suspicions are confirmed that the site was from the 7th century Anglo-Saxon period and not the later and more common Viking era. At that point, the snooty experts from Cambridge and the British Museum elbowed their way into the drama. They declared the private property to be a site of national importance and historical significance, and so begins a tug-of-war. The trove of artifacts was hidden in the London Underground for protection during the war, and only exhibited in 1951, nine years after Pretty died, and without any mention of the contributions of Brown, which the British Museum later corrected. And lastly, for poetry this week, Sabbath by Wendell Berry. The mind that comes to rest is tended in ways that it cannot intend is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. Your Sabbath, Lord, thus keeps us by your will, not ours, and it is fit our only choice should be to die into that rest or out of it. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for July 18th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.